first arrived on the docks of London and in the luggage of West Indian immigrants who traveled to England by boat from the Caribbean in hopes of a better life. What originated as a musical piece of home in a faraway and foreign land went on to become a popular and influential sound in England, beginning in the 60s and resonating throughout the next two decades. Ska, rocksteady, reggae and dancehall would not just only become popular styles of music in the UK, but also platforms of expression for many black working class people in England. And now, when we talk about the history of this racially and socially charged time period in England, Jamaican music is always part of the story. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. On today's program, Dread in England, how the UK took to reggae. We will be traveling across the Atlantic to show how the music of a small Caribbean island with a creative determination and a do-it-yourself attitude became an undeniable cultural and social force in the heart of its former colonizer, the United Kingdom. The year is 1964, and an 18-year-old Jamaican by the name of Millie Smalls has scored a massive hit with My Boy Lollipop in England. It goes on to sell over 600,000 records and reach number two on the UK charts. The ska style of the track was very different from most of the music being played on the radio in the UK. The Beatles' Hard Day's Night was charting, while Elvis Presley had released Viva Las Vegas that year. Yet, My Boy Lollipop proved to be a sign of things to come for Jamaican music in England. But how did Millie Small's hit find airplay in the first place? It turns out the seeds of Jamaican music had been planted in the UK well before, with Jamaican jazz musicians arriving as far back as the 40s. David Katz, author of Solid Foundation, an oral history of reggae, to set the scene. Well, it does really go back to those jazz pioneers, these pioneering Jamaican jazz musicians that came up here and started to interact with other musicians here. This is part of what makes London such a fascinating place musically, is that you have musicians from Britain's colonies or former colonies coming together and interacting with each other and interacting with the host population. So you get this fertile intermingling that happens uh, during the Second World War and after the Second World War. Reggae, 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 reggae. While jazz and calypso were the sound of West Indian London in the 40s and 50s, that began to change as more and more Jamaicans arrived after World War II. In need of blue-collar workers, Britain opened its door to its former colonies, promising jobs and a better life. And like many from the Caribbean, Jamaicans began to arrive in droves with records from the island in tow. Britain had the biggest Jamaican population outside of Jamaica. And of Britain's immigrant communities, the Jamaican community was the biggest immigrant community. Initially, you had a couple of entrepreneurs who had record shops here that started to license product from Jamaica for their core Jamaican immigrant audience. Because of London's multicultural nature, 
reggae or Jamaican music by and large, it just begins to be adopted by the black community at large in Britain, but specifically the black Caribbean community. So its core audience was a Jamaican immigrant community, but it starts to spread pretty quickly. Small UK labels with a focus on Jamaican music begin to sprout up and distribute records in London. Jamaican sound system culture, where DJs or selectors would construct gigantic speaker towers and play the latest exclusive records coming out of Jamaica and beyond, began to grow throughout urban centers in England, where a lot of Jamaicans and working-class Brits live. David Hines, lead singer of the hugely successful UK reggae band Steel Pulse, was a youth at this time in Birmingham, about 120 miles north of London. Hines was born in England, but his parents were Jamaican and moved here for work. We contacted Hines by phone recently while he was in Martinique. My first brother came over in about 1958 with all the types of food he could pack into the suitcase because it was still that kind of thing where Jamaicans were still missing their food. And as well as the social commentary that was going on in Jamaica, like, guess what? This is what the latest form of music that was happening on the island. So that's how we got connected. Then we emulated everything that was happening out of Jamaica. As a youth, Heinz would hear Jamaican music at everywhere Jamaicans gathered. We heard it on every single environment where it was social happenings. For example, it was a wedding, it was a christening, if it was a birthday party, or anything where Jamaicans were gathering to celebrate something. We'll hear the music, someone have their, their amplifiers, and their huge speaker boxes, you know, huge as wardrobes or closets with huge speakers in them in, in any hall environment or any house that can accommodate that and play music all night long and everybody be just dancing away, you know, drinking, eating whatever food that was made for them and all that kind of stuff and that's how it was. I'm Georges Collinet with Dread in England on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. As popular Jamaican music changed from the upbeat style of Scott to the slowed-down rhythm of Rocksteady and then Reggae, its popularity in England grew. Labels like Chris Blackwell's Island Records or Emil Shalit's Blue Beat began to market Jamaican music not only to black audiences in England, but to the white working class as well, who often shared workplaces with Caribbean migrants. By 1969, reggae had become the sound in Jamaica and enjoyed growing chart success in England as well. Desmond Decker's Israelites became the first Jamaican song to hit number one in the UK. Get up in the morning slaving for bread, sir, so that every mouth can be fed more me Israelites. Get 
Israelites as a single was definitely a landmark and Desmond Decker doing an actual tour as a as a solo singer you know this this was really a, a momentous occasion Nineteen sixty-nine is a kind of a turning point when you have these three records in the top ten. You you had um, the Upsetters, um, Return of Django. You had, had the Hair J All Stars, The Liquidator. You had the Pioneers, Long Shot, Keep the Bucket, and a number of other hits followed. You had Bob and Marcia, Young, Gifted, and Black. You had some other Upsetter instrumentals also reach the pop chart, like Man from MI5 and Alive Injection. Yeah, artists appearing on top of the pops and doing tours. As Jamaican reggae grew in popularity in the UK, Jamaican artists began to tour there and perform. Toots and the Metals, Jimmy Cliff, Lee Perry and the Upsetters, Ken Booth and John Holt are just some of the major Jamaican artists in the early 70s who crossed the Atlantic to perform, record and even take up residency. I'd like you to give a good welcome to one of the greatest bands in the world, the Whalers! I and I up play some reggae, you know. <laughs> Bob Marley and the Wailers in 1973 performing live in Leeds on their first UK tour. The band toured in support of their LP, Catch a Fire, from Island Records. This was the jumping-off point for Mali and the Whalers, who were on their way to becoming an international sensation. With reggae as an undeniable presence in England and Jamaican artists touring frequently, British-based UK reggae bands naturally began to form. Here's David Katz again. Then what starts to happen, inevitably, you have artists coming up to tour here, but they weren't typically able to bring an entire band with them. So most performing acts were either one lead singer or a harmony group. They didn't usually have their own self-contained bands. So it was inevitable that you would need to have musicians who were based here. It's important to stress a lot of the reggae that began to be made here or the initial backing bands, they were never strictly Jamaican. Dub and reggae musician Dennis Bovell didn't come from Jamaica, but Barbados. Yet Bovell is something of a legend of UK reggae. His work with his band Matumbi, dub poet Linton Quasi Johnson, and early UK lovers rock is a cornerstone of British reggae history. Here's Dennis on how he discovered reggae in the late 60s and early 70s. When I came here, the Beatles were the Rays, the Who, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Animals, groups like that. And then in came Toots and the Maytals, Jimmy Cliff, Desmond Decker, the Pioneers. And then the whole scene was opening up in England where you would hear that Top of the Pops that week was uh, Max Romeo. Who 
it was very encouraging for us to form a reggae band. Although there weren't that many reggae bands specializing in strictly reggae. Seeing an opportunity, Bovell did just that. Reggae was a, a little known beat and people seemed to be foxed by it and mesmerized by it and think, how the hell do they do that? Where is the beat, you know? And, and, and it seems that, hang on a minute, you can't feel that? You know, to people who go, oh, it's there. And then suddenly we became good at playing the reggae beat. Take a look at it. Bovell would name the band Matumbi, and they started to back visiting musicians before eventually signing with Jamaican music label Trojan Records. Pat Kelly was very, very popular in England and was being played on national radio. When he toured around England and Great Britain, Matumbi was his backing band. We had signed with Trojan Records He'd heard us because he was at Trojan Record and he knew that we were kind of going around playing and he needed a band uh, one night and he asked us and we did it and then after that we kind of forged a relationship, you know, and we did uh, a couple of tours together. Other UK-based reggae bands begin to form as well. Groups like Aswad, Mistine Roots, Reggae Regular, The Cimarons, and Steel Pulse all formed and began to record and play shows around the country. Many of them started as backing groups for visiting Jamaican artists. Despite reggae's growing popularity as a black music in Britain, socially things were tough for immigrants in the UK. Unemployment, racism, tax hikes, and police discrimination led to protests and rioting by the late 1970s and early 1980s. In 1979, an anti-racist demonstration in South Hall, London, took place against a growing National Front Party, a far-right political party for whites only. During the demonstration, violence broke out between the police and the protesters. Many were injured, and a young New Zealander by the name of Blair Peach died from a blow to the head. The troubles began early as many of Southall's 30,000 nations, a fifth of the town's population, blocked off every road to the town hall. By now it was a town under siege. Despite numerous accounts of witnesses seeing the local London Special Patrol Police, or SPG, beating up Peach, an inquiry into his death found no one guilty. The lack of accountability on the part of the government added to the growing tension amid rampant discrimination and disregard for London's immigrant and working-class populations. In the aftermath of Peach's death, dub poet Lyndon Quesi Johnson wrote a song for him with Dennis Bovell's band. Here's Bovell. On that demonstration, the police waded into the crowd and beat up a few people and he died. 
And uh, we, Linton was saying, hang on a minute, the police killed that guy. At the time, when Linton wrote the poem, I was like, boy, you're you going to be in trouble here because, I mean, <laughs> you're going to get taken away. You know, you're going to disappear. Because the arm of the police force that he was talking about, you know, the paramilitary arm of the British police force, you didn't stand a chance against those guys. If they were coming for you, right, man, you know, and for him to stand up and say, yeah, I've been told that they did it, you know, and then be proved right. Wow. Let's have a listen. Here is Reggae for Peach by Linton Kwesi Johnson, backed by Matumbi. Everywhere you go, it's the talk of the day. Everywhere you go, you hear people say that the special patrol, them a murderer. Murderer, we can't make them get no further up. The SPG, them a murderer. Murderer, we can't make them get no further up. Call them kill Blair Peach, the teacher. Them kill Blair Peach, the dirty bleeders. Blair Peach was an ordinary man. Blair Peach took a simple stand against the fascists and them wicked plan. So them beat him till them life was done. He was a social comment man. Um, Matumbi did make some social comment too. Uh, but Linton is and has always been king of that. I mean, when he was writing about how the police were treating and brutality and um, social issues, you know, because if you listen to the music there with Linda Gretchen Johnson, it's a whole new bag. And the way he's talking, he's not even attempting to sing. He's like getting his word across in the same way like the last poets did. So that's the reggae side of social comment. For David Hines of Steel Pulse, the social and racial tension during the 70s was even worse outside of London, in Birmingham. Where we came from, there was constant confrontation with the police, constant problems trying to get jobs because of how we were as, as, as a people. The city was not an easy city because of the racial tension that was happening between us and the police. By the 1970s, reggae music was dominated by lyrical themes of exile, oppression, and call to chant down Babylon, or the system. Fueled by the growing popularity of the Rastafari religion in Jamaica, a radical Afrocentric spiritual belief, reggae's political and social consciousness began to resonate within the black British communities. The songs of Johnny Osborne, Burning Spear, and Black Uhuru were more than music. For Heinz, they were a revelation. We lived every word what a lot of these guys were saying in where the little town we came from. And that's why it was so difficult for a lot of things that the system was throwing at us, trying to keep us into in mainstream Britain. And it was a lot difficult to brainwash us because of this predicament we were in, living in a, in a town like Birmingham, for example. This is how bands like Steel Pulse evolved in all honesty. One of Steel Pulse's early singles was about the American racist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. Here is Heinz on the writing of the song. And then one day, I was reading about the Ku Klux Klan at the time. They had a leader called David Duke that was supposed to be coming to the United Kingdom to influence the leader of the National Front, which was a racist political party there in England at the time, influence them how to control and contain the blacks that were living in England. And that's how I sort of got the song going anyway, because I sort of imagined all this happening. Let's have a listen. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
walk no long Just kicking stones My mind in my own business I come face to face With my foe Disguised in violence From head to toe All and I fall Them not let me go now To let me go was not them intention Again, the less, the better, the sure Stand strong, black skin and take your blow I says that The Ku Klux Klan The Ku Klux Klan Here to stop our black man, yeah I says that The Ku Klux Klan the song acts as a metaphor for the racially tense period in England at the time, and it's heavily influenced by the politically and socially charged reggae coming out of Jamaica in the 70s. Ku Klux Klan in many ways connects the experience of Caribbeans living in the UK to the greater experience of the forced African diaspora. It's a theme that Heinz and Still Pulse would come back to throughout their career. Put it this way. I don't think Moses had any idea that he would be leading 600,000 people out of Egypt. All of a sudden, he developed into becoming the person right to do the job. Well, that's how I felt. Um, there's a lot of things I was exposed to as a kid, which um, a lot of people would just take it in its stride, but I sort of took it literally. Dr. William Les Henry is a social anthropologist and author of What the DJ Said. He also is a former British sound system DJ, where he was known as Leslie Lyrics. Much like Heinz, Henry's life growing up in the UK as a black youth in the 70s was marred by racism. We chatted with Henry by phone from his home in England recently. Growing up in the UK and in parts of London was dread at that time for black boys especially. But for us, you know, we were going to school and kind of running that gauntlet of hatred. But I mean, it's not the only thing that was against us, but it was very significant in the way we view the world or the way we viewed the world at that time. You know, when I was younger, we were taught martial arts like Shotokan Karate. We're talking 14, 15, 16 year olds because we used to get attacked by white men regularly. I'm talking big, big men in their 20s, 30s you know, attacking kids, so. But it was a dread and terrible time to grow up in. You know, racism was rife and it was brutal in many ways as well. is that we were never ever meant to feel that Britain or England was our home. And as an African person or a person of African ancestry or whatever, you cannot be English. You can be British, but you cannot be English. And when that was drummed into our heads, you know, because when we were younger, you know, white people, whether they were racist or not, used to remind us of that. So whether it was them turning us to, you know, F off back home or whatever, we always had constant reminders that we were actually 
born in the womb of a scornful mother because we saw Britain as a mother country. So there has always been those kind of tensions and, I don't know, conversations, not even conversations, arguments about where our place is, where do we locate ourselves in an inherently racist society that really only wanted our parental generation to come over here, build the country up and get lost. Right now, African, Asian, West Indian and Black British stand firm in England in a this year time here. For no matter what they say, come what may, we are here to stay in England in a this year time here. Les Back, professor at Goldsmith and author of numerous books on racism and identity, grew up in the South London neighborhood of Lewisham, a major center of Jamaican music, its sound system culture and racial tension during the 1970s and 80s. Afropop producer Saxon Baird caught up with Les Back in South London recently for a walking tour of Lewisham's major cultural areas of reference from this politicized time, and also to chat about Back's own experience as a young, impressionable, white working-class youth caught at the very real crossroads of politics and race. I met Les Back in a university cafe at Goldsmiths College, expecting to be led to a dusty professor's office for our interview. Instead, Back is eager to hit the streets. As it turns out, the university, located in the South London neighborhood of Lewisham, is mere blocks from a number of important landmarks to speak to both the presence of Jamaican music and its influential sound system culture during the racially tense period of the 1970s and early 80s. Welcome to Lewisham, the home of sound system culture in London. I think one of the most important sites of, of not only the experience of listening to reggae music in London, but also a site for innovation and pushing the form. We start at a busy intersection just outside Goldsmiths. Without back as my guide, it would be easy to ride off the area as just another street of the many that wind their way across South London. But as back explains, this intersection holds much more cultural weight than meets the eye. So here we are on Lewisham Way. We're just about across the street. Josh Shucker sound system, which was one of the biggest in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, played in this area extensively. As a young man, I went and heard Chaka many times. And his, he had a little culture shop across the street here on, on Lewisham Way, where he would sell records. Josh Shaka and Saxon Sound were two of the biggest sound systems in the UK during this time and were located here. When Jamaicans migrated to the UK, they brought this sound system culture with them. And by the 1970s, the sound system and the dances they would put on became a center of entertainment and refuge for many West Indians. The words spoken by the DJ became a new form of expression, an alternative news source, creatively commenting on the experiences of daily life for blacks in Britain. For Back, who was exposed to the music and the culture that was unfolding right on these streets, it was a true eye-opener. This was music that was being played and heard in an environment where there was both intense popular racism and urban exclusion at the same time that the music itself created an alternative world. You know, a white kid like me could gain access to that world that was being hosted by black people, that was being defined by black people, was being shaped by black people, 
Uh, and you know, in a way, it was it was a really important part of my political education as a young man. And I need some resources to make sense of that. Uh, and in what in a way, the sensibilities of dancehall and the sensibilities of the sound systems was a huge resource to me in making sense not of Jamaican culture as an exotic thing, but as London and London life as a complex, you know, post-colonial city where the, you know, those young people were in London because of the British Empire. The British Empire was over. What was London going to be now? But beyond the music and culture, a social and racial struggle was taking place in England, oftentimes right out in the street. On that corner of the street, 50 meters away, is where in 1977, when the fascist National Front marched through Lewisham, where the people who assembled here, you know, local black kids, politically motivated whites, stopped the National Front on that street corner at the top of Clifton Rise. So you can see within the space of 50 meters, you have the culture of the sound system and the politics of race unfolding. Uh, you know, not unfolding in a sort of abstract intellectual way. This is like a street fight. You know, you are not walking through our streets practicing that hatred. It wasn't a matter of let's have a discussion or an argument. This was a street brawl, you know. The demonstration back describes is often called the Battle of Lewisham. 241 were arrested and 111 were injured. It also marked the first time police had used riot shields in England. But when the smoke cleared, a statement had been made against the National Front and racism. It was a huge victory. And the thing that was, you know, profound from my point of view, you know, I was a teenager then. You know, I had friends who went to that march on both sides. I had people who were leaning towards uh, racist nationalism, and I also had people who, you know, loved reggae. White friends, as well as black ones. And um, so, in a way, that day was really a defining one. This would not be the only defining moment of Bax youth in Lewisham. Growing up in a neighborhood with Caribbean migrants and a vibrant sound system culture was in many ways a microcosm of other similar neighborhoods across England and a reflection of what was going on socially, musically, and politically in these spaces. And what Bax heard DJs saying on the local sound systems around Lewisham has made a lasting impression. It was a revelation to me just to see and to understand London life from a different vantage point. You know, so things that, people that I knew, things that I was proximate to, uh, but were total mysteries to me at the same time. Despite the success of the Battle of Lewisham and the thriving music and culture, racism remained ever present. Mere blocks away from where we started our journey, a blue plaque now sits upon a row house marking the tragedy of the New Cross fire. This is um, 439 New Cross Road, where in 1981, on the 18th of January, tragically, over a dozen young black Londoners died as a consequence of the petrol bomb that was thrown through that window that's right in front of us. It's taken a long time for there to be a marker on this building. Uh, it was just a couple of years ago that the plaque that we're looking at here was unveiled. Saying racist things in the caf or in the pub, that's where it led. You know, it led to that kind of stuff. And to, and to be confronted with the violence of racism in that way, I think was, was just an extraordinary, extraordinary thing um, in all kinds of ways. 
As we walk through a local park, just blocks from the location of the new crossfire, Back points out a gymnasium where sound system dances used to take place in the neighborhood. This is Moonshot Youth Club, or what was Moonshot Youth Club. It's got a great big face on it, uh, and that's where sound systems played. So gyms, you know, sterile, dead places, suddenly became uh, animated, vital, lively, where you know you could hear the traces of Trench Town or Black Ark in a sterile sports hall in New Cross. As we came to the end of our walk, I asked back about the present. These cultural places have long ago changed hands or gone unnoticed by a new generation. Does the importance of the sound system still resonate culturally? Has this anti-racist message resulted in progress in any real way in the everyday interactions of the street? Well, I think there is real progress. There is real progress. I mean, one of the streets we haven't walked down has a NF piece of graffiti, a national front graffiti, a racist piece of graffiti that has been left to fade. It wasn't removed. It's barely visible now. So there wasn't a rush for someone to get that kind of sandblaster and blast it off the wall. It's been left to fade. And in a way, it's a kind of metaphor for the fading power of that organized racist politics in this place. There's been a, there's been a struggle on an everyday level around those issues and that kind of extreme racism can't be articulated in that way in this place. It can be in other places, but not in this place. So I think there is real change and real shifts. At the same time, does that mean that racism has diminished as a kind of powerful force in our society? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In less than 45 minutes, we return to Lewisham Way, and what seemed like just another South London neighborhood has been transformed into a center of rich cultural history and the story of Jamaican music in the UK. Thanks, Saxon. Great report. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. As Les Back and Saxon mentioned, sound system culture was an important element in the growth of Jamaican music in England. Here's David Katz. Sound system culture is a really huge part of this country, and it's influenced so many other aspects of the culture. The whole way that uh, reggae and dub specifically took off, uh, that never would have happened here without that sound system culture being so strong here. What we think of as dance hall now, it starts to come in in the late 70s, and then in the early 80s there's this dramatic explosion. And I guess it coincides, as Les Henry talks about in his book with that turning point when the local MCs and toasters over here began to make recordings that really were speaking from their own experience and were really products of their own identity here as black British people. 
Sound system culture in England actually dates back as far as the 50s and was another major part of why Jamaican music became popular in the UK. By the late 70s and early 80s, nearly every pocket of London and every major city in England had sound systems ready to compete or clash with other sounds. Local DJs showed off their skills and their exclusive tunes, but it was also a place of refuge, a forum for the discussion of the day's experience, and of course, all about what the DJs were saying on the mic. Here's Dr. William Les Henry again. I mean, that's what Shaka and other sound systems used to do. They represented like a, a safe haven for us, you know, where we could go out, hear music that, that more reflected our social, political and cultural sensibilities and be amongst our own as, you know, African-Caribbean people or African-African-Caribbean people because predominantly that's what it was at that time in those spaces especially. Hello, hello, hello. What have we here Well, if this one don't wreck you, you must be dead. Are you about to weep because you're underfed? Well, I'm on Leslie Lewis. Come for feed the multitude with words like Jesus. Feed them with the bread. People would be articulating what you can do to get yourself out of your situation or what you can do about a particular situation. So that's why on sound systems, you know, the DJs would talk about everything from how to deal with being stopped and searched by the police to how to deal with love problems or, or whatever. The focus wasn't just on race or racism because that is just one aspect of our life or, or liberty as Rastafari would say. People need to understand that these were transcendental spaces and not just spaces of resistance. To Henry, the spaces where the sound systems played became one of the most important settings for blacks to interact in Britain. That what was being articulated on reggae sound systems in the UK from probably 1981 to 1987 is probably the most pro-black African-centered voice ever to come out of the UK because we we governed that space so we were judge jury and execution of what happened in that space it was almost like an autonomous space in that sense and self-regulating by the 1980s DJs in England were beginning to cultivate their own style that often addressed the experiences of blacks in Britain one of the most popular tracks to come of this period is a tune called Cockney Translation by British DJ Smiley Culture. On the track, Culture playfully transcribes Cockney slang to Jamaican British patois. Let's have a listen. 11, 10, 9, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It's I, Smiley Culture, with the mic in on me, Hannah. Me come to teach you right, Hannah. Not the wrong in on the Cockney translation. Cockney's not a language, it is only a slang And was originated, yeah, so in England The first place it was used was over East London It was respect for the different style pronunciation But it wasn't really used by any and any man This is strictly con man, also David Lang But you may pull up of lyrics and education Right, you know, you all go get a liquor translation Cockney have names like Terry Arthur and Del Boy We have names like Winston, Lloyd and Leroy We ball out, yo, wild 
Cockney say, boy, what Cockney call a jack sweet, call a blue boy. Say Cockney have mates while we have spar. Say Cockney live in a drum while we live in a yard. Say we get yam while Cockney get captured. Say Cockney say governor with a big boat. Yeah. Cockney translation was one of the most popular British dancehall singles of the 80s. But before its success, Smiley Culture was an up-and-coming DJ with Saxon Sound, a popular sound system of the 80s and early 90s. The sound system would go on to produce some of UK's most famous dancehall DJs. John McGillivray, co-founder of Fashion Records, the label that released Cockney Translation, recalled for us the power of Saxon Sound during that time. Saxon was the kind of the young sound that really delivered most of these artists onto the scene. And they went with it, approached it in a different way. And, and they were really innovative. And they had all the talent gravitated there. And Saxon facilitated that. And it was a British thing, because Saxon dancers were absolutely ran. DJ-wise, they were killing the Jamaican DJs. To McGillivray, Smiley Culture's Cockney translation represented something that was happening every day on the streets of South London and beyond. If you speak to most guys who've grown up in England, you're going to find that they talk two languages. You know, if they were, especially in those days, if they were from a West Indian background, amongst West Indian people, they'd speak in Patois, but they would adopt a certain amount of wherever they were from. So we're in South London, so. One minute they'd be talking in Patois, the other they'd be talking in South London Cockney. McGillivray first saw Smiley at a clash with the Jamaican sound system in London and knew immediately he wanted to record him. Smiley was really the real deal because this was right from the streets. Just level vibes in. Another Saxon sound DJ during this time was Papa Levi, who we met up yeah. with at the busy Brixton it's Community Centre in South London. We're from like South East London, side, where back in them days, end of the 70s, early 80s, sound systems like South East, Brixton, we all represented our, at our own sound systems then, you know, and that would be whether it be South East, North London, East London, every area had its own representation sound system-wise. Levi would go on to join Saxon's sound and begin to cultivate his style on the microphone. To Levi, the important thing was being true to his own reality. I don't mind any kind of lyric, as long as it's true. If somebody's chatting something what's true, even if it's negative, you can't fight it because the truth is the truth, isn't it? Something true, something people could relate to and try to have a bit of humor in within whatever scenario you put into lyrics, you know? Eventually, Levi scored a hit with a tune called Me God, Me King. Let's have a listen. My best lyrics are right at night. Earlier, well, a.m hours of the morning kind of thing um, but it's usually always dark <laughs> and I write my, my best lyrics my god my king came that time was it like in one take <laughs> yeah 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 my god my king was one take 
the track would also be one of the first British dancehall songs to cross the Atlantic and chart in Jamaica. There ain't no rapper or DJ in England who has been influenced from Jamaica in some way or another. It wasn't a planned thing, it was a thing that happened. The first time when the tables kind of turned and here influenced Jamaica. Levi's style of chatting on Me God Me King is often called the fast chat, a quick almost prototype of rapping. The origins of the fast chat style are debatable. Some would say that fast chat was originated by British DJ and founder of Saxon Sound, Peter King. Some would disagree though, most notably Jamaicans themselves. We sent producer Saxon Baird, no relation to the Saxon sound we've been talking about. We sent him to Jamaica to get their opinions on the UK dance hall in the 80s, the origin of fast chat and the cross-Atlantic influences being exchanged at the time. We start by taking a taxi cab downtown through the winding and noisy streets of Kingston. Our destination is Rockers International, arguably the last fully functional record store in the city. Once there, we find Mitchie, who runs the storefront. All right, my name is Ainsworth, otherwise known as Mitchie, worldwide. Everybody knows me as Mitchie. The store on Orange Street has a number of people crammed inside the small space. Record collectors from Poland flip through dusty crates of vinyl, while friends of Mitchie stop by to say hello frequently. As I chat with Mitchie, I ask him about Papa Levi and the influence of UK DJs from the 80s. Yeah, Papa Levi, my God, my King single, was number one. It was a song that took like, the speed rapid style of DJing to another level. Yes, yeah, so it was very popular here. So there was, I mean, European influence has been strong. It was a different style of DJing. It was like, my God, my King, in the Jehovah. Slam bomb tank him The tempo of the rhythm didn't change, but his tempo and his voice lyrically changed. It does just something different. Jamaicans never heard that before. Most people didn't even realize that Papa Levi wasn't Jamaican. I mean, he is Jamaican by birth. Or by bloodline, yeah. But most people thought it was a Jamaican artist doing it. So it was like, hmm? man from England? So it was like, yeah, kind of shocking like. Mitchie gives much respect to Papa Levi and says that English DJs influenced Jamaican DJs. But he's also quick to point out that Jamaicans were influencing Britain first. Do you think it influenced DJs after that? Like, yeah. Like Jamaican DJs? Yes, it did. Even though we had Jamaicans who were speaking that way, I mean, Papa San was, Brigadier Jero was, but they kind of bring it up more into the limelight. After leaving Rockers, I head east in a cab and into the Waterhouse neighborhood of Kingston to speak with legendary producer King Jammy. What's wrong? I come forget the clarity, I got pictures. Once in his studio, which sits inside a compound surrounded by 10-foot-tall bamboo walls, Jammy admits he enjoyed the sound system seen in the UK during his visits to England. I used to cut dubs for sound systems in England. And whenever I go to England, I used to visit dances, and those dances were much more vibesy than the dances that used to be in Jamaica. Those dances are like football match, you know, when, when you know, people are cheering for their sound, like you're going to a football match and you see 
you know, people, the audience cheering for their side. Yeah, yeah. That's how it used to go in England back in the days, especially when you have a crash dance. Sounds fun. Yeah, lots of fun. Jammy believes that English DJs were beginning to influence some of the Jamaican DJs that he was working with at the time, but wouldn't go so far as to say that British DJs originated the much-talked-about fast chat style. Also, some of the DJs from England were influencing DJs in Jamaica. Like Smiley Culture. Smiley Culture and you know, a couple other DJs. And you know what? They were doing more speed rapid at the time than the Jamaicans. Like Jamaicans did speed rapid stop, then the English DJs pick it up and carry it along some more. The speed rapid was in Jamaica first and then it faded out. And they picked it up in England now and took it to another level. As my short stay in Jamaica came to a close, I met up with Jamaican artist Half Pint outside on a balmy Kingston night. Half Pint revealed to me that one of his most famous tunes, Greetings, was actually recorded in England. And as it turns out, Papa Levi's Migod McKing was cut over the same rhythm. We were in the UK in about 1985, and we went to see Mr. Palmer from Jetstar, and we did the album Greetings actually there, because one morning we got up and we went to the studio down by in Stockwell, a studio titled TMC. And I remember even the engineer, Andy, and um, we put on the 24-track tape, and the first rhythm that was on the tape was the title Greetings, the Everless. So I just went in the studio and one vocal, I just sing, sing it one take. In the 80s, times were still tough racially and economically in the UK. And according to Half Pint, seeing that, even in a developed country like England, influenced the lyrics he wrote for Greetings. The economical state of the world at the time was almost similar in London also. So greetings would be like referring to blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit earth, or they shall know God. So that's the way I would be like prescribe it in my terms of saying greetings to all ragamuffin from Jah the Most High, the Creator, yeah. So that's how greetings came about. <laughs> And much like the others I spoke to in Jamaica, Half Pint appreciates what the UK sound systems and DJs were doing. Back in the days, I can remember, reggae music was more the music of the day in London. And the sound system like Saxon and Coxon, they would always have in some of the root music that was from back in the 60s. Their sound system would be like the more original sound system that deliver the Jamaican dub and roots reggae, so they were still maintaining that quality of music about them. And when I was there, I was feeling more like as, at least I'm still out of Jamaica, but I'm still getting that original feel or notion that Saxons and Coxons are still there, keeping the originality of the music. So who really originated the fast chat style? It's hard to say, but one thing is clear. A musical and cultural exchange was occurring between Jamaica and those living abroad in England. And by the 80s, Jamaican music in the UK had, without a doubt, reached a point where it was beginning to be noticed in the land where this music originated. 
Meanwhile, back in England, things were evolving musically. A new style of music called Lover's Rock had emerged, and as the name suggests, this music dealt with themes of romance and heartbreak and was aimed at folks looking to enjoy themselves and dance on the weekend. Lover's Rock was the answer to those who enjoyed the reggae beat, but could do without heavy themes of politics and Rastafarianism, or the hyper-masculine vibe of sound system clashes. Here's Dennis Bovell. Yeah, I have to say that a lot of what was going on with the Rasta movement and uh, the Roots uh, culture movement didn't really apply to the UK in as much as that the young ladies who, you know, wanted to be the, the next performers were somehow ostracized, you know, left out of um, what was going on. And I wanted to uh, be a help to them to get what they had to say out there. Bovell would go on to produce a lot of early lovers' rock by UK-based singers. As it turns out, the British style of lovers' rock quickly grew in popularity within black communities. Here's John McGillivray of Dub Vander and Fashion Records on lovers' rock popularity. It wasn't about dreadlocks and ganja and dub and some sort of cutting-edge thing, but it used to sell a lot more copies. If you come at it from a perspective of a housewife, That's exactly what you want to be pushing the hoover around to the tune of. Despite Lover's Rock's popularity with the West Indian community, it still had trouble gaining traction on a larger scale in the UK. The only Lover's Rock record really that crossed over was Janet Kay, Silly Games. You know, so Carol Thompson had some huge hit records at the time. Um, Gene added Bambo. These records sold huge quantities and were never represented in the mainstream at all. Not at all. I think because people looking from outside in, they don't find it as exciting as the dub stuff and the, the more militant stuff. While Lover's Rock remained a mostly underground sound in the UK for some time, it did find brief national popularity with the massive hit Silly Games by Janet Kay. Dennis Bovell wrote that song with Kay with the sole intention of making a hit. To start, Bovell came to the conclusion that the success of reggae lied in the beat of the drums. And I was like, okay, this is what you do. If you want to take the mantle, you got to change the beat. So I got on a drum set and I invented the beat that led with the hi-hat. Right? And the pat is the snare. Now, I've been working with Falakuti and a group from Nigeria called the Funkies. They had a beat, this Afro beat was like Right? So I thought, now, for my reggae, I'm gonna go So I'm in between Afro and disco. Right? And then the reggae beat's coming straight in there. You know? So the reggae's in slow motion against a really vibrant drum beat. So reggae's on the back beat, you know what I mean? And then with the sweet girl singing on top of the tune, it's like icing on the cake. That was the formula.
a formula that led to Janet Kay appearing on a massively popular music television program, Top of the Pops. I mean, to this day, the song is on the radio constantly, and that song was constructed to be a hit. Lovers Rock would prove to be a mainstay well into the 90s, while reggae and dancehall continued to be a presence in England's ever-diverse musical culture, the music kept evolving. Just as it had since the 60s, Britain drove Jamaican music to new musical avenues. Except this time, these UK-based artists were not just pulling from what was going on in Jamaica, but in their own backyards as well. As a result, new sound systems, DJs and dub producers developed. In the past hour, we've showcased how the music of Jamaica came to have an ever-important presence in the UK, not just musically, but socially and culturally as well. Times have changed, but Jamaican music's presence in the UK continues to play a role to this day. Our worries, ah, Babylon, you catch up in our worries, ah, Babylon deep in our worries, ah. Oh, my son, the world of them are going Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the US. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the showcase, trade fair, and conference devoted to world and roots music in Budapest, Hungary, October 25th first to the 25th. More info, Womex.com. Visit Afropop.org for extended coverage of today's program, including interviews and more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. This show was dedicated to Stuart Hall, whose work was foundational to this program. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Production and research for this program by Saxon Baird. Saxon rules the UK. <laughs> Additional research from Shana Lip, a true yardy biscuit. Mm. Please join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie LeBeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I'm Josh Collinet. Stop tweet. Poor people are suffer all around the world. Now tell me about life sweet, you're mad. Things change for the better, nothing PRI, Public Radio International.